Hello all. I want to talk about the plane, who's in the plane, what's going to happen with the plane, um, and whether, you know, it's worth it for some teams to even make these playoffs. And props to the Knicks as well. We'll start at the bottom. Everyone's talking about New York, and rightfully so. Uh, it pains me as a anti-New York guy, but I'm not anti-Knicks. The Celtics-Knicks never had a rivalry. We were never good at the same time. Um, even now, because we're not good, the Celtics meaning. Uh, but you got to give credit to, to what the Knicks are doing. I, I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Tom uh, Thibodeau is doing one of the best coaching jobs I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, sounds like a crazy statement to say, but you look up and down the roster, and it's not, you know, so if you told me that Randall individually uh, improved um, and became this leader and, and you know, um, I would say had a similar situation like Chauncey Billups where he was bouncing around the beginning of his career or not in the greatest situations, let's say, early in the Lakers team. You know, obviously Kobe's retiring. That's kind of a lost season development-wise. Then he stuck with two other young guys in Ingram and Russell, and Lakers are figuring out, you know, uh, who's going to be their high-usage guy and all kind of demand high-usage. So if you told me it was just Randall, and then he leaves that situation, goes to New Orleans, uh, plays pretty well, but kind of just stat pads, and then has a couple years to reflect, and then finally now is in a better place, has time off due to, due to the bubble uh, and the Knicks not being in there and extended COVID time, and improved his game. If you told me that it was just Randall, as we say in uh, Passover, Dainu, that's enough. But it's not. It's everybody. Everybody is playing above their heads, right? It's a it's it's basically a list of NBA castoffs, right? Starting with Randall, who Knicks fans really wanted to trade uh, this past off season, and that was kind of the key. The hope was, and you know, I said this too, right? I felt the right uh, course of action was to increase Randall's value. And hopefully flip them at the deadline to a contender, like a team like Dallas, um, for assets or, you know, anything that, that makes sense. But Randall's been playing above and beyond and is, is a legit MVP candidate. He's an MVP conversation. He's a top three, top five candidate for sure. He's in the conversation for all-NBA team, uh, you know, making one of the all-NBA teams. Easily the most approved player in the league. He'll run away with that award, as he should. If it was just Randall, that's a Dianu. It's not just Randall. Let's look at the other guys. Reggie Bullock. He could easily be out of the league. Bullock was floating around from team to team. Great spacing, two-way player. You know, nice solid role player. Kind of a poor man's Danny Green. And he was in situations where you, you felt like he could have succeeded like he is now, right? In the Lakers... Why, why couldn't he have been in a similar situation? How about Detroit he started? But he bounced around, and now he's like a legit two-way talent and one of the better off-the-ball two-way talents, honestly, in the league, which is crazy to say. But again, not just Book, not just Randall. How about Derrick Rose? Derrick Rose also... We, we wrote him off, right, uh, post a lot of injuries. 
And he had plenty of chances. It's not like he was injured. He came back a year later, and he's like, "Boom, I'm back." And by the way, with with and I, this is this is a point I want to make. With point guards like him, they're not that far from being out of the league at certain points of their career. Look at Isaiah Thomas. The dude was an MVP candidate with Boston. Obviously, a flawed player because of his defense. That's just because of his size. But post the Celtics situation, look, he was the main piece in a Kyrie Irving trade. I'm not saying he's as good as Kyrie, but he was the core piece that brought the Celtics Kyrie, that in the pick. And now he's, you know, he's in and out of the league, right? I mean, he signed with New Orleans here, signed with Washington, pretty much out of the league, right? So Derrick Rose, similar. Former MVP, gets bruised and battered a little bit, accepts role well as like a nice, solid backup. But we didn't, we didn't see this from him. We didn't see consistency, uh, efficiency, that, that, like the numbers he's putting up. And it's up and down the case. Up and down, up and down, right? Up and down, Noel playing out of his mind. R.J. Barrett improving. And R.J. Barrett, we could have kind of seen. We could have, right? Naturally, player in a year, uh, you know, year two uh, can make these kind of improvements. That's kind of typical. But, again... It's one thing to say if it was just Randall or just Rose or just Barrett or just Bullock. It is everybody. So what has Tibbs done? Now, you know, obviously, you know, the defensive intensity is way up. The Knicks are the the best defensive team in the league. Obviously, uh, you know, that's due to uh, a lot to do with Tibbs. But I think there's a classic opponent to what Tibbs is doing that – other coaches should look at and they, they should consider. And I'll explain. Tibbs is a 90s guy. In the 90s, I don't care who you were, every team in the league ran a crystal clear rotation. I remember watching on NBA TV, it was like such a. I love when NBA TV runs random regular season games that were like solid games from the 90s. Not playoff games, not like Seattle, Denver, Game 5, 94, not like that, no. Like, I don't know, 1994, uh, Grand Hill's rookie year, Celtics playing in Detroit. And by the way, not a good Celtics team, a Dominique Wilkins-led Celtics team. So I'm watching this game, and one of the, the things I notice immediately is how clean the rotations are of two bad teams. These aren't, like, good teams. Both teams missed the playoffs that year, right? This is, like, it's so, I love it because it's, like, watching a random. It's like, it's, like, tuning in now and watching the Cavaliers take on the Kings. And then that's on, like, NBA TV 20 years later. Like, oh, Harrison Barnes had a great night against Larry Nance Jr. Like, whoa, this, this is history right here. No, it's not. It's just, I just love it. I think the, the NBA should create a, a another channel called Hardwood Classics, where they just run a mix of random good games from the last, like, 40 years. It would be fantastic. Like, Bucks Nuggets in, like, 88. Alex English scores 40. Games goes to OT. I have no idea who wins. Don't tell me. You can even make a betting line for the game during the game. I don't think people are going to be able to look that up that quickly. Um, obviously, they can with basketball reference. But anyway, I bring it up because the Celtics rotation was crystal clean. 
they, they, they had something like Sherman Douglas, Rick Fox, Dominique Wilkins, uh, Derek Strong, and Eric Montross starting. First off, veteran-laden team, you know, but they're, they're developing strong. Uh, big team, too. Fox playing a little a little bit bigger at the two. Um, you know, obviously you have Wilkins there, but I, I like the size that the 90s brought. And then off the bench, uh, it was some combination of uh, David Wesley, D. Brown, uh, Dino Raja, and Xavier McDaniel. But they didn't play more than that. It was a clean nine-man rotation. Detroit ran the same thing. Detroit also ran a clean nine-man rotation. Again, two bad teams. Everyone's getting minutes in that rotation. And look, if you're not in the rotation, you know, tough luck. I mean, maybe you're a practice squad guy or, or what have you. Or you only play in blowouts. That's what it was. What was the guys getting, like, ten minutes? There wasn't, like, Luke Cornett jumping on the floor for 12 minutes. It was, like, 20 minutes or GTFOH. Celtics is a good uh, example of what happened with rotations. Because later in the decade, during the Patino years, obviously Patino runs a heavy press. It's a style. And naturally, when you run a press, it exhausts a lot of players. So you have to run deeper into your bench, deeper rotation. All of a sudden, you had guys like Purvis Ellison, who was one of the more underratedly... Horrific contracts over the last 30 years. No one no one talks about it now. I remember at the time. And it wasn't the money. It was the years. You're, you're killing a roster spot. I believe he was signed for something like six years, 12 million, which doesn't sound like a lot today. This is like in the no, early 90s. Um, Purvis Ellison averaged, uh, he was the number one pick, obviously, with Louisville. Uh, he had a 2010 season with the Bullets, then got hurt. And then the Celtics, who were trying to return to glory, were like, saw Parrish, you know, was fading away. Purvis Ellison is going to be our next center. Savior of the franchise. No, I'm just kidding. That wasn't his case. By the way, as an aside, just thinking about it out loud, the Celtics, is there a record for how many, uh, I mean, maybe the Knicks hold it in the mid-2000s. How many past their prime all-stars a team signs within a, a three-year span? I mean, consider this. Between the years of like ninety one and ninety four, look at the look at the players of Celtics side. Xavier McDaniel, former, you know, twenty plus point game scorer with Seattle and, and was a great player with the Knicks. Uh, Purvis Elson, as I mentioned, Dominique Wilkins. You can count Dina Raja in there. Now, granted, he was a, a rookie. I get it, but again, past his prime when he came to Boston. Um, I just think that's funny that we signed so many past past their prime guys um, in like a row. Like, it's like buying the car right when it loses value. That was a classic ML car. Anywho. So, rotations deepen, Patino deepens the rotations. And then, like, what becomes big in sports, in my opinion, I, I think this has an impact, and you can tell me I'm wrong, is the pitch counts in baseball. It's the first time you really see this notion in sports um, where people are like, Wait, hold on. The pitcher's arm's getting tired. Is he really effective that late? And that could that impact injury, which is really the main concern, right? I think there's two things to look at. Let's use pitch count as an example. At what point, using the pitch count example, does it um, 
harm. You know, at what point is basically his pitch is getting worse, right? Is it at the 100 level? It depends on pitcher, obviously. Um, but I think there's also the component of a long-term impact, right? You look at like Strasburg is the, is the classic example um, when, you know, uh, Washington wanted to be hesitant at making the playoffs, and they were very strict with his pitch count because I think they were afraid of, obviously, future injuries. You saw guys like the Cubs aces, like Wood and Pryor, and, um, you know, Pedro Martinez even was very, I would say, nimble um, and, and, and rail thin, and, and everyone was kind of afraid of his arm going, and you have that a lot in, in baseball. It's obviously the way they throw, but, but pitch count's a big deal. So this became big in like the late 90s. People were now reporting on it, what the guy's pitch count is. Um, or so, I think, the prior years. And then baseball started evolving more middle relief, and, and you really saw those guys, you know, uh, become a bigger part of it versus uh, other seasons, right, where you're willing to kind of go with your pitcher longer. So the NBA kind of sees this. And I don't know if they took it from baseball, but it was the first time a, a sport did it among the four major sports. As a, as a concept, and I think they, they took it. They were like, they started looking at, you know, minutes, right? I remember, like, Antoine Walker used to average, like, 40 minutes a night. Does anybody average 40 minutes a night anymore? No. Maybe in the playoffs. But in the regular season, no one's averaging 40 minutes a night. You're not going to have stories anymore of, like, Kevin Johnson playing every minute of a triple OT game in the finals. That doesn't happen anymore. So the minutes became a bigger deal in the NBA. And I think this is what's great about the story. The, the, the where it, it hit its head is with Thibodeau. Why? Because now it becomes more of a deal in the 2000s. People are looking at uh, minute count and ensuring their stars aren't getting overall with minutes. But the one coach who comes in and is like, F that. I'm playing my best players who I think are going to win the game for me. And if they're playing 38, 40 minutes, you know, that is what it is. They're athletes. And that was Tibbs with the Bulls. Lou all day, getting heavy minutes. And then the, the the mantra and the stories just kept being, he's running his players to the ground. Uh, he got into the fight with with, uh, with then-GM John Paxson um, about, you know, playing Joakim Noah too many minutes and uh, Gibson too many minutes and Dane too many minutes. So he got this, like, bad reputation of being, like, anti-modern NBA Forget the whole three-point revolution. He wasn't anti that. He was really, he was obviously a defense first guy, but he was he was running, you know, guys to the ground. That's what they said. That is what the the narrative was about him. Again, this is, you know, perception is reality concept. So Thibodeau gets harmed for that. The Bulls, I think, hit their peak under Thibodeau, right? They they compete with LeBron, they go to the conference finals. They, they give him a good fight, six games, uh, but they can never really get over that hump. And then Tibbs is ousted. And, like, let's just look at what happened. Tibbs is ousted. They want to go the opposite way. Reminds me of the Phoenix Suns in the mid-2000s. When the Suns had D'Antoni, they couldn't get over the hump. So they go the opposite way, right? They get Shaq. They're like, actually, we need to go old school. And they hire Terry Porter as coach, and that didn't work out either. Right? Maybe you don't have to go so drastic of a shift. If you're that close, something else needs to change. Bad analysis, by the way, on these teams, both teams. 
right? D'Antonio wasn't the problem. Phoenix, as evidenced by his future career, and Tibbs was not the problem in Chicago. Obviously, we know the rest. They get Hoiberg, and then they, they really just go further down. And I don't think people gave proper credit to Tibbs uh, being uh, the, one of the main reasons why they were kind of the upper echelon of the East at the time. They just chalked it off. They're like, well, you know, he ran people to the ground. It's like he's, he's so anti, you know, get off my lawn. Uh, okay, boomer. You know, this old school guy. We're not going to retain him. And, and, and I think he was done dirty by the media a little bit um, and, and has this weird stain for being anti-minutes or whatever you call it. Fine. He goes back to Minnesota. Tibbs goes to Minnesota. He's reunited with some guys. And by the way, the West is, is lethal, as we all know. And Minnesota, I hate using this term, does not have a lot of winning players, let's just say, right? Obviously, he brings his guy Taj Gibson there. He loves Taj Gibson. I feel like, you know, when Thibodeau goes on vacation, he just brings Taj Gibson. And Minnesota, under Tibbs, which has a flawed team and guys that don't try hard on defense, just call for what it is. Carl Anthony Towns, cough, cough. Make the playoffs. They made the playoffs under Tibbs. Granted, they have Butler. They still made the playoffs. Now, look, I get it. They, they lost. They, they played against uh, Houston Buzzsaw. Towns was exposed in that series, in my opinion. But they don't, again, bad self-analysis. Do not pinpoint the real issue. Minnesota has this constant theme. I can go over this. This is another pod. Where they have to constantly cater to Carl Anthony Towns. Why? What has the guy done for you? He's a flashy, nice offensive talent. Probably, you know, but he's not going to be the number one guy in a team that does anything. You know, they got to unload him. It's not not a good situation. So Tibbs doesn't get credit for Minnesota either. Like, well, they have Butler. They didn't do well in the first round. And he's let go of that. So now Tibbs has a deep stain. He's let go of two situations that seemingly had talent. But what people don't look at, what happened to those teams after he left? Minnesota kept getting more talent, right? They got Russell recently, and they haven't done anything. They've gotten way worse. Now, granted, Butler left. I get it. They traded him. They had to. But Tibbs was not the problem. That's the main thing. That's the main the main point here. Tibbs was not the problem. So now, flash forward, he finally gets a new chance. And again, like I get it. I get it for Knicks fans. Um, when he signed, there wasn't like this great, yay, we got tips. I was super skeptical. I'm like, wait, hold on a second. This team should be rebuilding. And you're going to bring an old school guy who is not known for like developing youth, but known for like trying to win now uh, as your main guy? I don't know. I don't know. I felt like there was rebuilding coaches that would have made more sense. But I was dead wrong. Tibbs comes in and and, and he, he instills a couple of really important things in my opinion. Um one of them, okay, is just a clean rotation. You gotta figure out 
when you're taking over a team, a good, a good example is like, and other, other coaches have done this. The old school coaches do this. Another good guy who's done this um, real well is honestly uh, Nate McMillan right now with Atlanta, who's approved uh, under him, right? Nate McMillan, okay. I thought it was he, he sees the situation. There's almost too many guys on their team. There's so much talent, and it's it's difficult to know exactly, you know, how to make everyone happy. Basically, so I think one of the blessings of the skies that happened to Atlanta, the Hell McMillan, was DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish getting injured. Look, I like them a lot. I think they're great youth, but like if you're trying to win. They don't really, it, it's a tough fit. And then they, they, they took off. They have a clean rotation. Thibodeau's what he brought to New York. He gave them a clean rotation. Fizdale and prior coaches were kind of figuring things out. How do I get Frank Nittalakina in? I got to develop him, right? What about Knox? But one of the, the cleanest things he did was he stuck to a nine-man rotation and was consistent with it. Good game, bad game. This is what we're doing, right? And if a guy's hurt, another guy just plops into the rotation. Look at Frank. And look, I love Frank Nittalkina. I think he's got, he's still got potential. He could be a good player in this league. But he was out of the rotation. You know, he look, he does some weird things. Do I agree with Alfred Payton playing? No. But again, everyone, every single game knows their, knows their role. I remember, you know, believe it or not, I played basketball when I was in high school. And um, there's a story we played against a, I was a senior, and the coach hated me. I got minutes, uh, 9th, 10th, and 11th grade, new coach comes in, I'm, I'm right on the bench, not not a fan of, I played like Eddie House, so he didn't really like this, you know, three-point line, a three-point line style, even though, you know, I was ahead of the, the curve, modern NBA-wise. And we're playing against the team randomly, and one of our guards are hurt, that starts, but in practices, I was, you know, playing the same role. I was this backup, you know, 11th man or whatever. Nothing to write home about. And I remember being in the locker room before the game, and he's like, okay, we got a, a new starting lineup tonight. And I'm like, okay, I guess he's going to try, I don't know, this other guy instead of the starting shooting guard. And he's going over, and he's like, and we're going to go with Rosenberg at the two. And I'm like, what the hell? Where did that come from? I, I wasn't even playing with the starters in practice. I was so um, confused and like kind of surprised by it. Um, and I look, I'm not saying like this is an excuse. Obviously, I'm making. I didn't play well because I'm not that good. But but I, I definitely did not play well. I remember taking shots. I was like, I, I gotta I gotta shoot my shot. Get a minutes. Gotta shoot your shot when you get minutes. For, for us, you know, other bench warmers, you know that. You get five minutes, you better take ten field goal attempts. Fill up that box score, baby. Um, in garbage time. But I just remember being utterly shocked, and it was just not a good flow. And in prior years, with prior coaches that had a clean rotation, regardless of my role, it was just a lot better. Not just having random guys come in and come out. And that's my uh, parable for the Knicks. I think it's a lesson. Other coaches should do, or like, you need to first of all don't focus so much on like these minutes things. These guys are great athletes; they're young, okay. They're not getting injured because of the minutes, 
All right? Like, I, I don't see the proof of that yet. I'm not saying they have to play 48, but they could play 35, 38. And just make, I think it's important to have a clean 8, 9-man rotation. And just stick to that. Stick to that rotation. And if you do that, you could be successful. Learn the lesson of Tibbs. That's happening right now with the Knicks. I can't believe the Knicks are going to give everyone else their lessons.